enter Player 2 podcast. I'm Nicole McFall and I'm joined by Player 2, Carl Murray. We discuss anything and everything about the world of games. Our show features deep dive discussions where we answer the questions that have all been on our minds, as well as that, we're going to go head to head in the Game of the Week showdown. Today, we're going to discuss the evolution of Battle Royale games and how this genre became so popular. Battle Royale is a genre of games that have really skyrocketed in popularity since 2017. This game mode really started off as a mod in 2012 when the movie Hunger Games was released. You remember that, don't you, Nicole? Yeah, of course. Um, I also remember when Hunger Games blatantly ripped off Battle Royale. I know that's a very controversial sort of quip in there, but Battle Royale came out in t- like 2000s and it was actually a Japanese action thriller film. It was based on the 1999 novel by Kasun Takami. And I'm not going to lie, it was very graphic, it was very real, it was very extreme in terms of the violence that was involved. But that sort of concept whereby they get young adults involved um, in a basically fight to the death scenario. And the, the government's implementing this for the entertainment of the higher classes. So the sort of parallels that they have between Hunger Games and Battle Royale, it, it's indisputable. A lot of people have opinions on it. But it's hard to argue that the Battle Royale film, or mo- or book rather, didn't inspire the Battle Royale game genre, because that's where the sort of cult phenomenon for it came in, in the early 2000s. And going forward, really, in this podcast, you're going to maybe understand that wee bit where this movie came in to inspire the mods that were created, and then to go on to inspire the genre that was created. After all... The, the genre is named after the movie. <laughs> it only makes sense. It's not like they want to call it the Hunger Games Fortnite edition, are they? <laughs> no, but um, the most notable games that included the Hunger Games mods were Minecraft and Armour 2. But you have this mod that was created for Armour 2 to thank for every Battle Royale game that has ever been made. And this mod was made popular by none other than the Irish developer Brenton Green, better known to some as his online alias as Player Unknown, the man behind player unknowns battlegrounds so like we said earlier on uh, the hunger games didn't really inspire it he was more inspired by the actual movie battle royale yeah i'm not even gonna lie the light bulb in my head just went and i was like so he's the player unknown i never realized that (laughs) and that's crazy uh no, that's really interesting. We were actually watching the uh, documentary last night. Um, who was it by? The YouTuber? By Noclip. Um, also an Irish YouTuber known as Danny O'Dwyer. Yeah, he was great. Honestly, I really recommend you check it out after you listen to this episode. But uh, no, the way he went from mod to developer is a really interesting journey. But we'll talk about that a wee bit later on whenever we're putting PUBG under the microscope. Yeah, so we're actually going to talk about that now. We fast forward a few years and Brenton actually became a consultant on one of the first ever Battle Royale games created, which was H1Z1. But then it goes on that... uh, Brenton was hired as a creative director by South Korean games company Bluehole and then they would create the most influential battle royale game and really started to kickstart this genre. You're a massive fan of the PUBG game aren't you? Yes I am and I kind of want to talk about my own real experiences here before we go on to talk about how this game influenced the, the industry. It was July 2017 and I was about to head to America for a few weeks with yourself and PlayerUnknown's Battleground had just released and I spoke to a few of my friends about it and tried to convince them to buy it and I was like, come on, let's get it, it looks fun and they all turned me down, said it was okay, too expensive, kind of listed some other excuse. So I buy the game anyways, play a few games, really, really enjoyed it. Fast forward two weeks 
I'm still in America and I decide to check on Steam and I see all those friends who had turned me down are now all in the lobby together. They're all playing <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. So I see they're on Discord. I can't believe it. I go in, I'm so mad. I'm like, oh, I tried to convince you guys to get this game and then when did you just get it? And they were like, oh, we got it a week later after you left. But it was all good because whenever I got home, I had friends who were incredibly skilled at the game and I was able to just jump straight in and be carried to my first ever uh, chicken dinner. <laughs> carried is the word. But it's quite interesting the way you had your finger on the pulse there and you were able to sort of see something before it exploded. I'm sure you were absolutely ripping whenever you realised they sort of just jumped on the bandwagon and didn't take you at face value. I think it's very tough for people to kind of get into these games to start off with and especially if you want to pay a price tag I think it was £20 maybe at the time or £25 but it's kind of like hesitant because some people will wait for game prices to go down they don't want to jump into the game straight off release and this was a game that I watched streams of I watched videos of I think most nobly I watched Giant Bombs videos and that's what convinced me to get it yeah I I actually remember the player do you mind if I call him player unknown for the rest of it because it just gives me goosebumps yes of course Um, (laughs) yeah so I kind of find it interesting that player unknown said that a lot of the hype and the sort of cult phenomenon that came behind the PUBG sort of rise to fame was how the streamers and the players carried it into the mainstream and the way that they were able to sort of sell it he said I I don't quote me now but part of the success of his product was the fact that they spoke so highly of it so I find it quite interesting that that sort of hesitancy and the reluctance that was there for a relatively new and unknown game no pun intended um required a wee bit more convincing so i think i find that really interesting i think that because the game was one of the first in the genre gamers were really hesitant to jump in they relied on streamers opinions before making their decision and whenever they saw how much fun they were having they decided to jump on the bandwagon and player unknown has stated a lot of the success is thanks to the streamers and i think that it's important to me that i was able to connect with my friends and play together whenever I jumped into Battle Royale games. It acquired a lot of communication and a lot of thinking about where we wanted to drop, where we want to go, if we wanted to take those risks to get better loot. And I think that experience in team play is what got the game so popular in the first place. Have you had any first-hand experiences with Battle Royale games, Nicole? Yeah, I have had some experience with Battle Royale games. I wouldn't say I'm as on an expert level as you are, but I have played a wee bit of PUBG when it initially came out. I wouldn't say it's beta stage, but, you know, the sort of first draft, first version, when I was doing this rough cut, because I think we were sort of getting involved in the hype. I couldn't get over the fact you kept going, winner, winner, check in, winner, every other week. So I, I had to try it out for myself because I'd be kicking myself if it didn't. And I really enjoyed it um, in terms of the way that you just sort of <laughs> chuck you in the lobby with a bunch of other people. It's basically the equivalent of the VR chat. You just got to meet all these different personalities, whether they be, as Player Unknown has said, both beautiful or incredibly destructive. But I like the fact that there was two aspects. You know, you could be an individual and you could jump straight into the game quite literally um, and were able to sort of have that freedom of choice, freedom to be an extremely, you know, go at it, Rambo type character straight into the firefight or one of those people who's sort of creeping along in the corner, kind of like me and my social life. Um, but you could play it whatever way you wanted in pretty unique environments. 
But one aspect I didn't try was probably the multiplayer when you were saying about jumping in there into the firefight with your mates and having that sort of team strategy and communication going on between each other. That's something I didn't try and I'm, I'm really kicking myself I hadn't. I know that that sort of mentality of multiplayer and co-op is really successful in Fortnite. I kind of shudder saying that because I kind of think Fortnite is like PUBG equivalent of a colour in book. It's just really shiny, but the same mechanic. And you know my opinions on that. But PUBG is supreme in my opinion i actually looked <laughs> in my memories on facebook the other day and i actually think i put a really controversial opinion about three years ago about how PUBG is better than fortnite um but yeah i've matured since then i'll maybe give it an, i'll maybe give it a chance battleground really led the groundwork for this genre and a lot of games decided to follow suit afterwards taking what player unknowns battlegrounds had made and then taking their own unique twist on it and like we said, Fortnite was one of those games that tried to capitalise and improve on this genre. So Epic Games have released Fortnite, which beforehand was a cooperative survival game, into early access near the release of Battlegrounds. Epic saw the potential to create their own Battle Royale mode, and by September 2017, they had released their free-to-play Fortnite Battle Royale, which combined some elements of the survival and mechanics from the Fortnite game with the Battle Royale game concept. And one of the main features of this game was that it was free to play and it came out with a battle pass system. It meant that you could put £10 in to buy the battle pass, you could complete some challenges, rank up, earn some cosmetics for your character, but also earn some in-game money as well. And you could save up that in-game money and then go on to buy the next season uh, pass, for example, with it. So it was a kind of like a one-time purchasing. You put some money in and, you know, you get this constant uh, challenges every single season. You're able to save up, have some money to buy some cosmetics. And yeah, it, it really exploded the marketplace and made Epic a lot it of money. It would be very negligent for me not to say that Fortnite is a cultural phenomenon for a lot of preteens, um, especially. So it's kind of their equivalent to, I don't know, Zelda. It's kind of like their cultural awakening to gaming for some people and some of them have been really successful especially in the esport category i just criticize fortnite a little bit because i kind of feel like it was an ip in its own and it had a pretty interesting concept in terms of it being a game of survival and construction and it's almost like they sort of jumped on the bandwagon or the train wreck some people might say is the battle royale genre and just monetized it um, they just sort of went where the money flows. In terms of monetizing it, one element that creeped in that will forever make me incredibly angry is the pay-to-play concept. I know you said that you could earn in-game currency, but some children have ripped the pocket out of the V-Bucks system, and I know a lot of parents shudder when they hear V-Bucks. I don't really necessarily think that it is pay-to-play. Pay-to-play is more a concept of where... You have to play to to win, you know, whereas buying these cosmetics really has no effect on how you play the game. It doesn't give you an advantage compared to, for example, if you're playing a mobile game and you're going to pay for this because it's going to give your your imaginary castle stronger walls, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose maybe that's a bit of an oversight, but the fact that they've monetized it in terms of the cosmetic element of it, and I know a lot of children, they love having the shiniest characters, the better characters, and teenagers. I feel like I'm undermining a lot of uh, (laughs) Fortnite players here, but there's a lot of um, young people that like their, their characters to look the best and seem the best whenever they're running about 
um, whether it be esports competitively or just with their friends, they're going to want the biggest guns, the shiniest castle, um, as you were saying there, and monetizing it, to me, just feels a bit cheap sometimes. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, and we're kind of talking around the cosmetics there. Um, one of the things I remember reading up about was that um, if you come into the game, you don't want to be a default, which is, you know, the, the default skin. And apparently, like, kids have been bullied in schools because, you know, their their parents maybe couldn't afford to buy them V-Bucks to be able to get a pass and to be able to get the latest skins. Whereas, you know, there's maybe other families who, who you know, their kids had an abundance of money and were able to buy every skin that was released. So I understand what you're saying about maybe that disconnect between you know, uh, having to, to buy, purchase all these skins and then there's these ones who can't afford them at all. No, definitely. It's kind of like whenever you were a kid, you know, the person with the most Pokemon cards, the person with the most, you know, the Michael Jordan or Max, even if the game was free to play and a lot of people could be involved, there was a sort of social hierarchy when it comes to who has the best score or uh Chinese looking character or you know just who has the most fleshed out Fortnite experience and that that comes into the sort of politics of um, the playground but also I just think that sometimes people can get a bit addicted to it. I know there's been issues with that but you know let's not creep into the um, games affect IRL (laughs) situations I just think Fortnite had an IP and it kept elements of it in terms of constructing the fortress but just sort of sidelined the whole narrative and the whole concept of what it originally was just for that multiplayer facet um, a tournament mode that they have. So I kind of feel like Fortnite went where the money train was and completely went away from their creative direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And there's kind of two points there that I want to toggle on before we move on. The first one that you kind of said about the playground, um, the best example that I've seen of this was actually one of my work colleagues. So he has two kids. Um, one of them was kind of into Fortnite and me and one of my other work colleagues just decided out of curiosity, you know, we, we were joking about it in the office once and said, you know, does your play- kid play Fortnite? And what's he like does he enjoy it and he said yeah yeah so the way that he did it was to stop him getting addicted is that he was allowed to play it for two or three hours on a saturday or a sunday really just depend on it and you know he would do chores around the house and you know they maybe give him a five or a tenner you know at you know i think it's every two or three weeks and if he wanted to spend in-game money or get the v bucks you know he would his dad would then go and use his pocket money to be able to buy that and the kid was able to get skins that way which I thought was a very nice way because then it meant the kid was able to go in he's able to play for two or three hours which wasn't too much and it wasn't too less he was able to buy the skins he wanted to and he's able to play with his friends which I thought was absolutely great and the second point you were saying there about the creative direction I'm going to say a bit of a controversial statement here but whenever Fortnite was first shown back in 2016 i got very very excited for it and it was one of the games that i was looking forward to playing and i remember whenever it came out i was like ah just wait and it'll it'll go down price but then whenever i saw this whole battle royale thing come out i was confused and i understand what you're talking about the creative direction you can't really have a creative direction in a battle royale unless you actually have a a background and lore into it and then you also start to change the, the map and add story and background which fortnite eventually did do if you look back at the whole history of it you can maybe watch hour long videos about how the map changed and the lore around it so i understand that 
they moved their creative direction from the survival game that they once had into the battle royale game and i'm not 100 percent too sure whatever happened to the survival game but i hope maybe at some point we can go and check it out see i'm criticizing fortnite but i haven't played an awful lot of the game so i don't think that's fair maybe it's a bit biased you have played the game what's your thoughts on it so i have bought two of the battle passes i bought one for the fortnite john wick one and i bought one for i can't remember what it was it was something cool but i did star like wars buy, oh star wars yes and the marvel packs and the actual real john wick pack so i have spent quite a good bit of money maybe around uh, 30 pound uh, of in-game currency and one of the reasons that i really enjoyed the game was the constant updates to the map so we have um player known to battlegrounds has about four different maps whereas fortnite has one that is constantly being updated and i think the fact that it's kind of like you can jump in and you can play but it was the cross platform that really got me at the start so whenever i went to america for work i was able to actually bring my nintendo switch and me and one or two of my mates were able to play he was at home in ireland on his pc and i was in america with my nintendo switch and we were able to hop on discord and play together and that's what really got me into the game the fact that it doesn't matter where in the world i was you know i was still able to have that friendly banter with my friends and we were still able to drop wherever we want to go and I kind of think that it was the hype of all the streamers as well, um, particularly Ninja, which we're going to talk about in a bit, that really got me into this game. So I saw Stroud playing it, I saw The Dark playing it, even uh, Tim the Tapman uh, really rose to popularity because of this game. And I think it being entrenched in you know modern day culture, you know, we have the dances, but you also have... Um, big raves that are occurring in game offense you know you've got movie trailers that are debuting in it that it really was you know starting to become larger than life i was really impressed by the star wars launch event that they did i thought that was incredible i really really enjoyed their whole uh, thanos uh, marvel endgame type stuff that was probably some of the most fun i've ever had in the video game being very very excited for um infinity war and then being able to play as Thanos, you know, be able to hit him and, you know, do all that type of stuff. And then the fact that they brought another game mode around uh, next time for Endgame, where you're able to get four different equipment based on the main Avengers, and then you had to take down Thanos' army. It was an amazing limited time event, and that's what really got me hooked back into the game. I suppose uh, the success lies in the fact that it's constantly changing, constantly inviting new franchises and developing a bit more of a community aspect as opposed to just the Battle Royale mechanic. That'd be fair to say. Yes, it did. So you had the rise in community alongside the rise of the Battle Royale games. And like we mentioned earlier on, with the rise of Battle Royale games, we saw the rise of one streamer in particular. And it's hard to really talk about Fortnite without mentioning Ninja. The gamer rose to mainstream popularity by being incredibly skilled at this game, but also being very entertaining as well. He put on a show and had fun doing it, and a lot of people became invested in watching him perform, and he got incredibly lucky to be able to capitalise on the success of this game. He did very well. Um, he was going to go to Mixer, is that right? Yes, yeah, so he eventually sold out, or not really sold out. <laughs> he came back, though, he came back. The best way to say it is that he made an investment in his future to go to Microsoft's streaming platform, which was Mixer, which, you know, was guaranteed um, money at the end of the day. And the fact that he was able to, that we talked about it before in one of our previous podcasts about how him 
being able to get these brand deals with these streaming platforms allowed for Twitch to go back to their streamers to get them better deals. And overall, he has turned uh, being a gamer into a full-time job. Which is incredibly hard to do because you really have to strike lucky. But as we've noticed, being a gamer is pretty damn cool. And he'll do well no matter what platform he's on, whether it be Twitch or Mixer. He's got quite a character and a very good brand going for him with or without Fortnite. Exactly. He was one of the first ever um, gamers to actually sign a deal with Nike. So he's got his own brand. He's got his own clothing. And it really shows how successful this guy can be. The fact that now he's become a household name. As successful as Ninja has been, I'm sure there's a lot of other streamers that have been able to capitalize on the hype of Fortnite. Could you maybe talk about some of them? Yes, I want to say in particular that Tim the Tapman and Dr. Lupo are two of the streamers that really capitalized off the success of Fortnite. If you look into how Lupo and Tim became very, very popular, it's got all to do with um, the controversy surrounding Dr. Disrespect at the time, where I think he had cheated on his wife. He went away from Twitch, and then I think Shroud had got all the viewership, and then also Ninja was leaving Twitch. So whenever Shroud left Twitch, there was no real top dog. So I feel like a lot of people decided to kind of piggyback on to Tim and also on to Dr. Lupo. And I can kind of attest to this because I was one of those people who did that. I remember, I think I was doing a bit of work and I just wanted to put a stream onto the background, was trying to find something fun and entertaining, put on Tim. And Tim was has a very, very genuine, you know, happy-go-lucky sentimentality. You know, he shouts, he's, he's loud, but at the end of the day, he's just trying to put on fun for friends and he's having fun playing video games on the internet. What's not to love about a guy like that? But Tim eventually decided to move away from Fortnite and kind of moved into another Battle Royale game, which is Call of Duty Blackout, and then eventually Call of Duty Warzone. So Fortnite and PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds were the top dogs in this space for a number of years, but other games companies like Activision came along and they wanted in this action. EA are also one of the other games companies out there that are very well known for their game Apex Legends and Ubisoft are coming out with their own Battle Royale game which we kind of covered uh, a couple of weeks ago called The Hyperspace. What do you think of all these games companies just jumping on the bandwagon Nicole? I genuinely think that the moment that they sort of jump on this cultural phenomenon that's become the Battle Royale genre the market's going to be oversaturated and for that reason they're going to be competing against one another and there might be some interesting concepts that might come out of these Battle Royale games and um, in terms of mechanics, in terms of unique appeal, maybe even plot. But I think that people are going to eventually get fed up the more that people jump on this bandwagon. You know, the wheels are going to break and you're going to be going down that path, the crooked path that is to be uh, beat out games, basically. Do you think that having these games free to play is what hooks the players? The fact that they're able to jump in with no cost instead of having to pay £20 for the experience? I think they're going to get a lot of casual gamers or walk-ins basically that will come into the community try out the game see if they like it see if it's for them or for not not for them and there's not there's no money lost in that aspect but in terms of getting those gamers itself each game is going to have to be unique in terms of what it brings to the battle royale genre and i think maybe i was a wee bit harsher earlier on i know with call of duty you've got a wee bit more of that sort of militant aspect that maybe player unknown had talked about in arma 
bit more real to life. Call of Duty Warzone, I've heard good things and bad things about it in terms of it just being so massive. But if they can get that expansive world um, into a better developed position, then maybe I might play a wee bit more of that. Apex Legends hasn't been doing quite so well, but I've been hearing really good things about hyperspace. So you might have noticed that there's an aspect of, you know, the first person shooter, but, you know, you've got yourself a bit of a space vibe. You've got the militant vibe. Um, what more can you expect? They're trying to up the game in terms of the themes that they're going to be providing. But other than that, um, you're going to have them drop off a of flies. If, if it's free, it doesn't mean they're going to invest in it unless you really hook them and keep them. So maybe let's talk about a few games companies that kind of taken their own twist on Battle Royale games. So for example, they really like the genre, they really like the concept, but instead of it being a actual Battle Royale game, jumping in with guns and having to kill people, they have decided to take a different approach towards it. Tetris 99 is one of those games that takes a unique twist on this genre, but it's the fact that you can turn Tetris into a Battle Royale experience is crazy to me. I think it's insane. Some really good players, I remember watching you play it and I nearly had an anxiety attack. <laughs> you need to really keep very focused and it's been very quick. You really have to keep focused and it's very fast-paced. Yeah, it's very hard to play as well because you're trying to complete your row, but you're also getting like loads of other ones coming in from everybody along the map. I always tend to hit the auto mode instead of like choosing one person because you end up choosing one person and then everybody gangs up on you and then you, you're put out straight away. It's a very, very intense experience. Yeah, I really enjoy the Fall Guys game. I think it's really colourful and it's really bright and it's really fun and it actually really reminds me of possibly one of my favourite shows when I was younger and I was sick. It was Takeshi's Castle. I think it's really wacky and very Japanese. Um, what was your thoughts on it? I really enjoyed the game and the fact that it's coming out uh, tomorrow as we're recording this is getting me very, very excited for it. It is £15 or, or £16, but I really think that it's worth the experience uh, you have all these mini mini games and the whole point is that you have to survive these rounds you have to get to the very end so for example there's like an obstacle course and then there's uh, smaller mini games like football and like tag it, it looks really really fun and i highly recommend that you check this out so what are your favorite battle royale games nicole my favorite battle royale games is has to be player unknown battleground the calling and this is not as quite as popular, but Minecraft survival games. It's been a while since I heard The Calling. This was actually one of the games that I tried out whenever it first came out. It looked really, really enjoyable, but I could never properly get into it. Why is that? I just really didn't have any friends to play it with. And then whenever I played it as a solo experience, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I thought I would. I thought the environments were pretty interesting and the fact it kind of had that dystopian feel as opposed to you just being put in a random field. It had a lot of urban landscape, which I thought was really fun. It really did remind me of a Hunger Games spinoff. Yeah. Should we put it in the bin then? Yeah, we will throw it in the bin. <laughs> in the bin. <laughs> My top three Battle Royale games are Fall Guys, Tetris 99, and sitting right there at the top has to be Player Unknowns. Battlegrounds. Terrible that we didn't put Fortnite in our favourites there. I could technically swap out maybe Tetris 99 for Fortnite, but I just had too many experiences with my friends a player known as Battlegrounds. We had so many chicken dinners and I had some solo chicken dinners as well, but I'm sorry, it has to take the cake. Where do you think the Battle Royale games will go next? And 
do you think that they could become overdone? I really have to reiterate what I was saying earlier on. I think that it's really successful in terms of it being a new genre, but I think the market's just going to get far too saturated and they're just going to beat it with a big stick a wee bit. I think people are going to get sick of it and they might come back to it at some point whenever they've reinvigorated it. But a lot of the games that are out at the moment, because they're free to play, they're kind of like, almost like a server. There's no, you know, hard copy element to it. You know, there's not going to be a next installment. There's just going to be updates and updates and patches and communities. So the community might exist there for a while, but I think it's eventually the sort of sensationalism around it is going to eventually drop off in the next couple of years and they're going to look for the next big thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Hopefully that maybe this free-to-play element that the Battle Royale genre has brought into the gaming world will be distributed among the rest of genres. Hopefully we see more multiplayer shooters turning free-to-play, like we're seeing with Halo coming up in the next couple of months. Oh yeah. Battle Royale games have been an incredible influence on game developers and became an overnight sensation. Only time will tell whether gamers will become sick of this genre in the next few years. Now we're going to move into our Game of the Week showdown. Hello and welcome to the Game of the Week showdown. The rules of the showdown are simple. Both players pick a game they support that fit the bill for a specific theme for this week. Both will then battle against one another in an animated debate to see which game comes out on top. The three categories to focus on are plot, mechanics, unique appeal. The winner picks the theme for the week and takes home the championship title for that week. Games used once may never be used again in upcoming showdowns. This week, Assassin's Games. So you kind of threw the curveball at me last week whenever you won that you decided to choose one of your favourite genres of games, Assassin's games, which you've mentioned on every single podcast. <laughs> I didn't throw a curveball. I stabbed you in the back because that's what an assassin does. Oh, well, I think it'll be uh, pretty disappointing whenever you lose this episode. I don't know about that. I don't think you'll see me coming. No, well, you definitely have not seen this game coming. Oh, no, don't even try and come back from that. <laughs> Hitman. 2016. Oh man, you really hit me there. Um, okay, well, uh, I'm going to go for Assassin's Creed 2 Brotherhood. Oh. Yep, also known as the ultimate game in the franchise. What year was that released in? Why do you always ask this? Why? Because I like to understand the history behind the game. Fine. Um, Assassin's Creed 2 was released in 2009. Okay, so we have seven years uh, difference between these games. So Hitman is a 2016 stealth game that was developed by IO Interactive and released episodically for Microsoft Windows, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One from March 2016 to October 2016. The game, which has six episodes, is the sixth mainline entry in the Hitman franchise and its story takes place six years after the events of Hitman Absolution, which I didn't actually know, and it follows the assassin Agent 47, as he goes on a worldwide adventure and solves a mysterious series of seemingly unconnected assassinations. So... Is that it? 
No, no, I'm just going to get straight into my plot now. I was kind of just giving you a synopsis of the game before actually getting into the deep dive about how Agent 47 came to be what he is. Okay, let me get straight into it then. In 1999, a man who goes by the alias 47 is initiated into the International Contract Agency, otherwise known as the ICA, and, demonstra- and demonstrates exceptional aptitude as an assassin. The ICA is unable to verify his background or uncover any information around him, and with the help of his handler, Diana Burnwood, 47 passes all the tests flawlessly, and the IC director approves agent status 447. Fast forward 20 years, in 2019, 47 completes a series of contracts for the ICA. At first, these contracts appear to be unrelated, but a man who's simply known as the Shadow Client has convertedly coordinated these contracts to attack a secretive organization known as the Providence, whose existence and converts control over the world's affairs were thought to be a myth. The Shadow Client uses the ICA and Agent 47 to kill the Provident agents, making ICA appear culpable and hiding his own involvement. The final contract addresses the fallout caused by the ICA uncovering the Shadow Client's actions and by the Provenance discovering the ICA's role in the attacks. Ooh, I bet you didn't think there was an actual story in this game. No, anytime I watched you play it, it was chapter-based, so there was a lot of different missions that made it interesting, but it was hard to sort of see what the narrative was behind it. Like, I I've still am a little bit confused as to why he's Agent 47 and why he's kind of like a mind, you know, not mindless, but almost like cold, collected, stealth killer. Like, he has no emotional investment in what he's doing. Like, he's almost kind of like, you know, the equivalent of, like, being conditioned, like Black Widow. Like, do you know what the barcode is? What's that about? I have no clue about the barcode on the back of his head. So he's so mysterious, nobody understands? Okay, that's kind of cool, I like that. I think you might be able to find out what the barcode on the back of his head means. I'm not 100% too sure, but maybe I'll do some research and we can come back to that. But would you like to get into the plot for your game? Yes, of course. Um, Okay, so... My game is Assassin's Creed 2, as I mentioned earlier. Um, It begins immediately after the events of the first game, in the year 2012. Um, So Desert Miles is still trapped by Abstergo Industries, which is also the Knights of the Templar. And after being forced to use the Animus device to revisit the genetic memories of Altair, which was in the first uh, game for many people who've played it, and has discovered prophetic warnings from Subject 16, who was a previous captive of Abstergo. So they he's sort of describing the end of the world and after we meet Subject 16, we're soon rescued by Lucy Stillman, who's a mole for the assassins within Abstergo, who takes him to meet two other assassins. There's historian Sean Hastings and there's the computer expert Rebecca Crane. They request that Desmond use their version of the Animus, which is not created by Abstergo, dubbed the Animus 2.0, to relive memories of another assassin, Atio Auditori Data Forense to train Desmond in the ways of assassins through the bleeding effect of the Animus. So Atio's memories begin during the Renaissance of the 15th century, where his family is ensnared in a political plot and his father and brothers are actually hanged. So Atio, following his father Giovanni's last advice, finds his father's assassin's tools and flees the city with his mother and sister to the safety of his uncle Mario's villa in the countryside. Mario assists Ezio in discovering the people behind the conspiracy and the search leads Ezio from Florence to San Gimigone, uh, Flori, Venice and eventually to Rome. 
as he identifies and assassinates more and more political figures, Atio also gains several allies, including Niccolo Machiavelli and Leonardo da Vinci, the latter of whom helps Atio improve his equipment using schematics found in Altier's codex pages. Eventually, Atio identifies the mastermind of the plot, the Spaniard Rodrigo Borgoya, who ultimately sought to bring down the Medici family in Florence with the help of the Pazzi family and the Barbarigo family in Venice. Etu finds Borgaya in the possession of the apple, a similar piece of Eden that Altier had recovered centuries ago, and learns that Borgaya himself believes to be the prophet that will lead to the Templars to the fabled fall. So yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of history, culture, and a wee bit of the lore with the artifacts. I think I'm going to have to give you plot, because just of how detailed that was, I originally was going to go into a lot of detail in mine, but... Uh, I think that that's kind of where <laughs> where I failed on this category. Yeah, I think the Assassin's Creed 2, it really is the symbol of the whole franchise because the character development and the narrative behind it is so, so brilliantly wrote. So I'm not surprised plot one of that one. But will your game mechanics win the next category? Time will tell. Depends what Hitman's going to hit me with. Well, why don't you get into game mechanics first? The mechanics I'm going to be talking about in the Assassin's Creed Brotherhood is rebuilding Rome. So within the game, the Templars obviously have influence in certain territories within the game. And as assassins, you have to try and regain them. So this is done by purchasing different shops, rebuilding landmarks in the world in the best way to accumulate wealth and also to strengthen the Assassin's Brotherhood. The economy in Assassin's Creed 2 was largely broken as leveling up the villa and its vendors, which meant you could quickly gain more money than you knew what to do with. And rebuilding Rome helped to fix that problem and added legitimacy as you were actually taking away power and real estate from the bourgeois family that we were talking about earlier on. Or sorry, Borgias family. It's not as simple as just buying any and all shops that you like. The area where shops are operated had to be liberated by torching Borgaya Towers and also driving the Templars out of the region. So I think that was really interesting and having a bit of a real estate territory aspect to it, which kind of goes outside what we're used to with Assassin's games and is more about giving back to the community. So that's one of the mechanics that I really enjoyed about Assassin's Creed Brotherhood. What is the mechanics of your game? So you might as well sit back for this one because there's a number of different mechanics in this game. The first is that you're able to explore these wide open maps and travel and decide the way that you want to approach your targets. You can play these maps over and over and as you play you unlock new outfits, new weapons and start new starting positions as well as new scenarios. Players may use weapons including explosives, pistols, assault rifles, long range sniper rifles. They also may assassinate the target at close range using blade weapons or throwable items. IO Interactive introduced a live component to Hitman, which was new content which was regularly delivered in a downloadable form, which include a limited time mission called Exclusive Targets. If a player fails to kill an elusive target before the mission expires or alerts targets and allows them to escape, the targets will never return to the game. The player is then rewarded for successfully killing with cosmetic rewards, and each episode in the game features the, this sandbox type environment that the player, like we said earlier, can freely explore and they can approach the mission by incapacitating 
non-playable characters wearing their clothes of disguises and then they can allow the player to gain access to restricted areas more easily but there are enforcers which are high-ranking members of the group agent 47 is impersonating they may recognize him and become suspicious and agent 47 can try to blend in to prevent this from happening and levels can accommodate about 300 npcs each which react to the player's actions and have their own separate routines and I'm just starting to scratch the surface of this uh, these game mechanics. <laughs> I think I'm going to give you mechanics for this one. It sounds really interesting. I really love the fact that Hitman, you can be very creative with the environment and the way that you can actually assassinate people, which is a really good mechanic as well. And that kind of leads me in nicely to my unique appeal, if you don't mind. This game offers really so much freedom compared to every other assassin's game out there. Players are able to decide on how they approach their assassinations. So you can sneakily kill someone by pushing them out of a window while being disguised as someone from their private security, making it look like an accident. Or you can just go in all guns blazing and, you know, kill people and leave them lying all over the place. And one of the things I really want to strive on this is that each episode in this game featured the sandbox environment that the player was able to freely explore. But they released these episodes every couple of months and listened to player feedback. And I really think that this was a big part of what made this game successful, being able to drag out the existence of this game over a few months and listen to the audience, which allowed IO Interactive to create a game that players realistically fell head over heels for. And whenever you look back at 2016, I guarantee you that the one game that is consistent across everybody's top 10 games of the year would be Hitman. I have a lot to live up to, don't I? <laughs> the floor is yours. Oh, okay, okay. So in terms of the unique appeal for Assassin's Creed 2, I really feel like the game made the franchise into a global powerhouse and a greenlit countless sequels, spin-offs, books and comics, which was followed soon by annual releases, the AIC franchise eventually surpassed in popularity in the series which inspired it. Some of these sequels were good, some of them were okay, Think looking at you, Assassin's Creed 3, and others downright lackluster and forgettable. I think we can all agree that no hero has featured in three games so prominently remembered so fondly than that of Ezio Auditore, a young, brash and curfew-free womanizer within the Assassin's Creed 2 game. Um, its narrative was really interesting. You get a very in-depth look in terms of the character development. There's a tragic aspect to it, but also there's a lot of development. And that's helped by historical figures and the cultural figures that we meet along the way, which are real-life individuals. And I really like that you can step into history, you can learn from it, you can integrate it into your story. And that's something to me that's really interesting that sort of takes a sidestep away from the usual formula that a lot of stealth-based games have and is more about creating your own character in this tragic story. I think maybe in terms of unique appeal and in terms of the mechanics, you may have won this one. Yeah, I think that I have won this one. And I just want to give Assassin's Creed the credit words too, because understandably, this is a game that you have a lot of passion for. And I understand that this game probably, and sorry, actually did shape the franchise and fast forwarded into the global phenomenal that it is. And I think that maybe the main reason why my game won was due to the real difference between the tech at the time when this was built back in 2009 and this was built in 2016 i feel like if you look at the massive assassin's creed games that we have today if you had the narrative from assassin's creed 2 with the technology of the modern day console that it would be 
it would be all over this. It would have won straight away. <laughs> Do you think it's fair to say that Assassin's Creed 2 it's kind of like a forerunner to what Assassin's Creed games are today. Yes, I do. I believe that it set the foundations which the franchise was then built on. But thank you very much for letting me win this week. Uh, I'm glad that I came back strong and uh, I'm really glad that a game like Hitman won. If you've never played the game before, you can go and you can pick it up for a decent price online or at a CEX or any of your local game stores. It should be um, probably less price now. And also, if you buy Hitman 2 and you have this game beforehand, you can import all the levels beforehand into the newest game engine. And then we also have Hitman 3, which is coming out um, at some point within the next year, which will be great. So what's the theme for next week, Gar? Oh, you're going to love uh, this one. I don't know if I... Uh, I don't know this one. The theme for next week is your favourite Lego game. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you very much for all your support. Now back to the show. And now is that part of the show where we answer your questions. If you have any questions, please send them into askplayer2pod at gmail.com. That's askplayer, the number two, pod at gmail.com. So the first question we have in today is from Sarah. What's your favourite Pokemon? You go first, Carl. Bulbasaur. Why is he your favourite Pokemon? Because not every Pokemon can be number one. Oh, jeez, you've been witness for your whole life, haven't you? Yeah, he's just <laughs> awesome. You know, if you didn't choose Bulbasaur in any of the original games, then what were you doing? That's true. My favourite Pokemon is probably going to be Lugia. No, that's my second favourite Pokemon. My favourite Pokemon's Mew. Oh my god, how did I forget that? The reason why Mew is my favourite is not just because Pokemon movie has a special place in my heart. I really just love how feisty and compassionate Mew is and also how curious and cute it is and I can do a decent impersonation so there we go <laughs> but he's not number one he's not number one but there'd be no Bulbasaur without Mew you got it you got my DNA it's in the genes okay okay I'll give you that one the fact that uh, Mew's DNA is in every single Pokemon and every Pokemon evolved from Mew and let's not get into the lore of Pokemon at this point but we will do an episode of Pokemon at some point Daffo We'll do like we'll just cover everything and anything Pokemon related because obviously it's a it's a game franchise before it was a, an anime franchise. So yeah, what's the second question, Carl? The next question comes in from Adam. What is your favorite game that you've played so far in 2020? That's a good question. What's yours? My favorite game so far that I played in 2020 has been The Last of Us Part Two. Um, we're only about halfway through the game, but we played uh, The Last of Us to start with. You know. Uh, it was released a couple of years ago. Really, really enjoyed the storyline behind that and then jumped straight into The Last of Us Part 2. And the difference between the graphics and the story and just the quality of life from the first to the second game is absolutely phenomenal. And I can go on and on and on about this, but we're going to save that for another uh, podcast episode at some point in the near future. Mm, we are going to get into Naughty Dog. We're going to definitely leash that dog and talk about it. But... Uh the favourite game, it has to be three. Maybe you can help me narrow it down. I think at the start it was Animal Crossing with its entry in March because we were all waiting from that for 2019 and it really came at a time that we really needed it. Um, lockdown, YOLO. Uh, I think I really enjoyed the Ace Attorney games. I'm not going to lie, simplistic as they are, really getting into the visual novel. Um, 
but I think the game that I'm enjoying the most at the moment has to be Yakuza 0. It's a franchise I never played and I'm really excited and really grateful that I have started playing the franchise because there's so many games out there. I just love like how fleshed out it is in terms of the narrative. It's quite silly, it's quite fun, it's quite serious. It's actually a really good combat game. And there's plenty of mini stories to keep you entertained after you finish the story. I know that you're really enjoying it, especially with the real estate property. You're making millions of yen, man. Yes, I am. I'm really, really enjoying Yakuza 0 at the moment. I'm kind of going between it and The Last of Us and Pokemon Sword and Shield. So it's kind of got a, a really rotating and very strange type of games at the moment. And then whenever we add maybe one or two more games to the mix, like uh, Horizon Zero Dawn and maybe another Battle Royale game in there somewhere. <laughs> so the last question we have in today is from John. I'm a big fighting game fan, been playing them longer than I can remember, and I like both 2D fighters and 3D fighters. I have no personal preference to either, but what's your preference? 2D fighters or 3D fighters? And what's your favourite of each? I think I will take the start of this. So, personally for me, I prefer 3D fighters, but I have played 2D fighters. So the 3D fighters that, you know, I've played have been uh, the Injustice series mainly and Smash Bros series. And the 2D fighters that I played have been the older Street Fighter games and some new uh, up-to-date games as well, such as Rivals of Aether. And I think my favourite 2D fighter would be Rivals of Aether. And the favourite 3D has to be between Injustice 2 and Super Smash uh, Bros. Ultimate. I really enjoy 2D fighters and 3D fighters, but 3D fighters probably have to be my absolute favourite. It's only because I grew up in Dragon Ball. I really like the fact that you can interact with the environment and you can change it and you can destroy it. And I really like that sort of interactive aspect of it. Um, but in terms of my favorite 3D fighter, it's Budokai 3. And my favorite 2D fighter probably has to be old style Tekken. It sounds like we're getting a lot of questions here about fighting games. Maybe at some point we can go back and look at the evolution of fighting games and how far they've come. And maybe we look at a bit of the background of the esports as well. Yeah, I would really like to do some fighting games in VR. Mm, maybe we will save that for another day. But I'm afraid that's all we got time for this week. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Enter Player 2. Make sure to visit us on all our social medias. Links to our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram can be found in the link description. Please be sure to subscribe and you will never miss a show. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a rating and a review. Plug in and join us again at Enter Player 2. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining. Bye. Bye.